Hi, everyone. Welcome to Boncello's podcast. Welcome to episode 12, and I think number three for our serial killer, um, I was going to say extravaganza, but I don't know if that's really an appropriate word. <laughs> but yes, back here again with Hale. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah. back. You are back. <laughs> We've had some problems today, but here we are. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think we're just going to go straight into it. Um, a bit of a heads up before we start these ones, because we went with a bit of a theme again, where um, these ones are a bit cannibalistic, which when I was doing my serial killer, it is quite gory. Um, and I was feeling a bit sick <laughs> just reading it. Um, so just a, f- a fair warning, really, to everyone. Uh, it will get gory and maybe just a bit... It's not nice. I mean, no serial killer is nice, uh, but I feel like these are particularly bad because they are very um, explicit. There's a lot of information on them um, that do go into uh, a lot of detail. Um, so uh, I will go first. Oh, yeah. if that's it's a... it's going to get gross. It will. Yes, a hundred percent gross. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, if it's all right, I will start with my chosen guy. Um, so I went with Albert Fish. Um, he was born Hamilton Howard Fish. Um, he was born in Washington, D.C. on May 19th, 1870. Um, he was known as Albert um, and wanted to be called Albert after a dead sibling and also to escape a nickname, uh, which was Ham and Eggs. Not really sure where that came from, um, but it, this was apparently given to him when he was um, in an orphanage. I'll touch on the orphanage in a second. Um, and he apparently spent a lot of his childhood there. Um, there is no explanation um, as to what ham and eggs means, um, but I would assume it's not very nice. <laughs> I don't know. I've never really had a nickname. Kids are just mean. They are so mean. So, I don't know, like, maybe he was just like, oh, I like ham and eggs. And they were like, eh. I don't know, something really stupid. Like, kids are all stupid. They're mean and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know why they called him that. Yes. But I'm going to assume it's not for any nice reason. Um, so, his dad died in 1875. And this is when his mom put him in the orphanage, um, where he was said to be frequently abused. Which is why I don't think that that nickname probably came out of love. <laughs> Um, uh, later on, Albert said that he enjoyed the physical pain that the beatings brought while he was in the orphanage. Um, in 1880, when he was nine years old, um, he went back home um, because his mom now had a government job and was able to care for him. Um, he did also have a couple of siblings. I think there were four or five of them in total. I'm not really sure if they went to the orphanage as well, um, but if they didn't, that would probably be very sad for Albert because he was the one put up for not, I don't want to say adoption because that's what I just assume orphanages are, which is also kind of weird to me that he's put there. But yeah, anyway, he went back on. Um, when he was 12 in 1882, <laughs> he had a relationship with a telegraph boy and this boy was said to have introduced fish to practices such as urolangnia, which is drinking urine, and coprophagia, which is eating feces, which just sounds vile to me. Like, if I was in a relationship 
and they that's were like look that's... you want to do this i'd be like no that's i can never see you again goodbye that's just i don't know <laughs> not something that i would find attractive at all but no, i guess teach yeah. their own but i mean this is a bit Four. extreme <laughs> Um, so Albert then began <laughs> visiting public baths where he could watch other boys undress. Um, and he spent a great portion of his weekends there um, visiting these baths. Um, however, in 1890, he moved to New York City, where by his own account, he says that he became a prostitute and began raping young boys. Uh, I don't really know how. Anyway. <laughs> It just seems like two completely different things. Like, oh yeah, I was a prostitute, but then I raped. Prostitute? No, (laughs) no, that's not how. um, I don't know. I mean, New York City was rough back in the day. It really was, but this is just something else. So in 1898, his mother arranged a marriage with him um, to a female called Anna Mary Hoffman, who was nine years younger than he was. Um, They had a total of six children. Um, throughout their marriage um, but throughout 19 I'm uh, sorry 19 1898 he worked as a house painter where he claimed to have continued molesting children um, and these were mostly said to be boys younger than six years old um, he later recounted an incident in which a male lover took him to a waxworks museum where he was said to have been fascinated fascinated by a bisection of a penis Um, And this was kind of where his um, obsession with sexual mutilation started. Fun. In 1903, he was arrested for grand larceny, convicted and incarcerated in Sing Sing. Um, It doesn't, I don't really have any more information on that, but grand larceny is just like stealing. (laughs) Um, But, (laughs) which is weird because Sing Sing is like, I thought it was kind of a, like a, I don't know, not like a big thing, but for like, I don't know serious criminals but he went there <laughs> for this um in 1910 while he was working in delaware so he moved from new york city he was said to have met a 19 year old man named thomas kedden um so he then took kedden to where he was staying at the time and they began a relationship which was like heavily surrounding snm um, it was unclear whether or not Fish forced Kedden to do these things, but Fish does imply that the man was intellectually disabled. So right off the bat, I instantly think that there is a question of consent there. Like, was he able to make an informed decision or whatever? So, yeah, not very nice. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's definitely like a like a blurred line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, after 10 days of knowing him and having him in his house fish took Kedden to an old farmhouse where he was said to torture him the torture was said to have taken place over two weeks um fish eventually tied Kedden up and cut off half of his penis and he said i shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me um which is crazy to me um he said that he originally intended to kill Kedden, cut up his body and take it home but he feared that the hot weather would draw attention to him so instead he poured peroxide over the wound wrapped it in vaseline covered handkerchief left a ten dollar bill kissed Kedden goodbye and left he said i took the first train home I, I took the first train i could get back home never heard what became of him or tried to find out 
which I think is really sad. Like, do you just basically left this guy for dead? Wow, it's like the original ghosting. Yeah, <laughs> but way worse <laughs> because he, he cut off half his penis. Because <laughs> also, like, if he was why only half? like disabled, was that only yeah only half, which is like worse. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't have a penis, so I don't know. But surely, <laughs> I don't know. Like, also, if he kind of just left him there, I feel like would he have had the ability to like call for help or was he left there to dry up uh, to dry up to um yeah bleed out because he said they just poured peroxide <laughs> over the wound and wrapped it in a handkerchief like that's not really i don't know i have a feeling that it didn't end well for thomas it's like his equivalent of like taking care of him yeah but in the most shitty way like minimal effort I'm like, hey, hey. And gave him ten dollars. Right. Yeah. No. Without a doubt. Yeah. Like I don't know. That's. It's just so sad. Um. Because, like, this guy just nobody knows what happened to him. Which is sad enough itself. I don't know. It just. It just made me feel really sad for this guy. Um. Then in January 1917, Albert's wife left him for another man, which left Albert to raise his children <laughs> as a single parent. Um. And it was about around this time that he began to indulge in self-harm um he would embed needles into his groin and abdomen um at his after his arrest um which obviously he gets arrested for a murder quite later on which i'll get to um x-rays revealed that he had at least 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region which you can see x-rays of this image online um and it looks extremely painful. Like, I don't know how you could go with even one needle. Right. <laughs> it wasn't even like he was just sticking himself. Like, he was, like, fully going in. Yeah, they were just... Yeah, because they were they were in there. Just, like, kind of free-floating in his abdomen. Oh, that's like, so what? gross. I don't know. <laughs> and he also hit himself repeatedly with a nail-studded paddle and inserted wool doused with lighter fluid into his anus and set it alight i hope his tetanus shots were updated <laughs> yeah well maybe maybe he didn't want to like because i guess obviously he likes the pain and the suffering right so if he had tetanus that's just another little icing on top I'm like yes i got this now too Woo-hoo. right yeah but yeah it's like a reward <laughs> yeah um but it was quite good news i guess silver lining that he was never thought to have physically attacked or abused um abused his children um but he did encourage them and their friends to paddle his buttocks with the same nail studded paddle he used to abuse himself so that's just weird i hate I that <laughs> i know like these poor children will just have this image and this memory of doing that to their father or to their friend's father. I don't know. Weird. Like getting hit or having to spank your father with a paddle. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, I guess he would have been nude or didn't have his pants on or anything because obviously that would inflict more pain, which is what he wanted. But right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Weird. So gross. Ugh. Yeah, definitely gross. 
Um, in about 1919, he was said to have stabbed an intellectually disabled boy in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., so another one. Um, he said that he chose people who were either mentally handicapped or African-Americans as his victims. And he said that um, he did this because he assumed these people would not be missed when they were killed, which is awful. It's so awful to me. But I think that's another thing. So that... there's a lot of similarities yeah. between Albert Fish and Jeffrey Dahmer. Are there? So Does he do the same? <laughs> like uh... how they kind of. But know. I feel like even when we've spoken about previous serial killers, they they do seem to have the same kind of mindset with their victims. A lot of them, don't they? They're like, oh, well, we'll pick up. So like when we, I can't remember which one it was, but somebody would pick off like young women off of a bus and they'd be like, well. Nobody missed them anyway. Right. Yeah. It all it kind all goes back. So, so there's this like theory of yeah. like the less dead, quote unquote, which I talk about like in the Jeffrey Dahmer one, um, mm -hmm. where how like you know in those yeah. you know like early 1900s and stuff like you know African Americans, uh, sex workers, uh, intellectually disabled people were all less dead and they were less likely to be investigated by police. Right. Yeah. And so they obviously use that to prey on them, what they thought was an easier catch, I guess, which is really sad. I don't like it. Oh. That's what they did. Um, so, yeah, he also said, Fish, that um, he would he claimed that he would occasionally pay boys to procure other children for him. Um, and he would torture, mutilate and murder young children with what he called his implements of hell which were a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw, oh. which is awful. Yeah. And to children as well, like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's horrible when it happens to anybody, but, like, I don't know, kids is, like, a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like they are more vulnerable and kind of less likely to stand up for themselves because they don't really know, do they? Like, I can imagine he wasn't, like, the one last time where he was just like, right. oh, come here, I'll pay you $20 for whatever. Like, I don't know. Right. I, don't, I wonder what he said for them to, like, want to go with him. Because I'm sure it wasn't like, oh, here, I'm going to, like, mutilate you. Come here. So. Um, on May 25th, 1928, <laughs> <laughs> um, Fish saw a classified advertisement in the Sunday edition of the New York World that read, Young man, 18, wishes position in country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. Three days later, Fish, who was then 58 years old, visited the Budd family in Manhattan under the pretense of hiring Edward. He later confessed, confessed that he planned to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and leave him to bleed to death. Um, when Fish got to the Budd residence, he introduced himself as Frank Howard and said that he was a farmer from Farmingdale. He promised to hire Budd and his friend Willie, um, and he said that he would send for them in a few days. However, fa um, Fish failed to show up, but he sent a telegram to the family apologizing and saying that he would come at a later date. Um, when Fish returned, he met Edward's younger sister, who was called Grace Bud. Um, he apparently then changed his intended victim from Edward to Grace um, and quickly made up a story about having to attend his niece's birthday party. He convinced the, their parents, Delilah Flanagan and Albert Budd, to let Grace accompany him to the party that evening. Um, and they did, for some reason. Um, and so she left with him that day, but never returned. 
Um, I feel like if some guy was just coming to my house and was like, oh, actually, I've got to go to my niece's birthday party. Can I take your, your kid? I'd be like, no, absolutely not. Who are you? Yeah, don't ever let your kids go with anybody. No. Oh, Jesus. Um, weird. <laughs> I don't know what these people were thinking. They're, like, way too trusting. I'd be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who you are. You're not going anywhere, my child. But anyway. Um, so police later arrested a 66-year-old male as a suspect in her disappearance um, because his estranged wife accused him. Rude. Um, he spent 108 days in jail, but was later found not guilty. Um, in November <laughs> 1934, which is six years later, an anonymous letter was sent to Grace's parents, which ultimately led the police to fish. Um, Mrs. Budd was illiterate and could not read the letter herself, so she had her son read it to her. Um, so they have the letter, and I'm going to read the letter. Is again, quite... Uh, gory and pretty disgusting um so i'm gonna read it really quick uh, and so it does have misspellings and grammatical errors which he obviously um wrote so it says my dear mrs bud in 1894 a friend of mine shipped as a deck hand on the steamer tacoma captain john davis they sailed from san francisco to hong kong china on arriving there he and two others went ashore and got drunk when they returned to the boat, it was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in, other, in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stated there... Oh, he wrote stayed and it's S-T-A-I-D. There so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven. All of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When I was all ready, I went to the window and called her. I then hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and said she would tell her mama. She said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked, how she did kick, bite, and scratch. 
I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take meat to my rooms, cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. That was the letter he sent to her. Mom, isn't that awful? Ugh. So vile. Such a vile man. Oh, it's the worst. Right? So police later investigated this letter. Um, The story concerning Captain Davis and the famine in Hong Kong could not be verified. Um, The part of the letter concerning the murder of Grace, however, was found to be accurate in the description of the kidnapping and obviously the subsequent events, um, though it was impossible to confirm whether or not he had actually eaten her. Um, So, I mean, at least that. Um, uh, the letter was delivered in an envelope that had a small hexagonal emblem with the letters NYPCBA, which represented the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. A janitor at the company told police that he had taken some of the stationery home, but had left it in his rooming house uh, when he moved out. And the landlady of the rooming house said that fish checked out of that room a few days earlier. So obviously he just used the letter from the stationary from that um see she said that fish's son sent him money and he asked who hold his neck check for him um and so when he returned to collect the check the chief investigator was there um, and caught him um fish agreed to go to the headquarters for questioning and then brandished a razor blade um the investigator disarmed fish and took him to the police headquarters Um, Fish made no attempts to deny the murder of Grace Budd, saying that he meant to go to the house to kill her brother, um, but he said it never entered his head to rape the girl, but later acclaimed to his attorney that while kneeling on Grace's chest and strangling her, he did have two involuntary ejaculations. The information was used at trial to make the claim the kidnapping was sexually motivated, thus avoiding any mention of cannibalism. I guess they were like, well, this is worse. So they went with that stance instead. Uh, pretty terrible. I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't know. Um, after his arrest, there were some other crimes which were discovered, and I just chose two. Um, so one was of Francis McDonald, who was a nine-year-old who failed to return home after he was playing catch with his friends in a neighborhood in Staten Island. Um, a search was organized, and his body was found hanging by a tree in a wooded na- area near his home. Um, According to an autopsy, the child suffered extensive lacerations to his legs and abdomen and his left hamstring. His left hamstring had almost been entirely stripped off of the flesh. Um, At first, Fish denied any responsibility, but later admitted to raping and murdering the boy, stating that he intended to castrate him, but fled when he heard somebody approaching the area. So just left him there, which is awful. Um, Then there was somebody else. Um, another little boy called Billy Gaffney. Um, he was a four-year-old boy who was abducted by fish. Um, the boy was playing in his apartment hallway with um, another three-year-old and another 12-year-old boy. Um, the three-year-old told police that Billy was taken by the boogeyman, which later is uh, one of the nicknames for Albert Fish. Um, and the description later matched that of Albert's. Um, so Albert later wrote to his lawyer, again, just a, a warning this is quite 
Grimm. Um, he wrote to his lawyer saying that he had stripped Billy naked and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag, cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes, stuck his knife in his, the boy's belly and drank his blood. He then said that he cut him up, made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly with onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt and pepper. He said it, he said that he also had eaten his monkey and peewees and his behind. And he does go in like oh. the letters online and he goes into detail about like how everything tastes and how he cooked it. And it's just, ugh, it just makes me feel so sick. Like, how could you do this to someone? Yeah, I will never understand cannibalism. I mean, no, obviously, but, you know. Yeah, no, it's just, I don't know, like, the way he talks about it, like, it's just, like, it's nothing. Like, it's normal. Oh, yeah, I, you know, use onions and carrots. And it's just, like, like, it's a normal stew. Um, So, Albert's trial for the murder of Grace Budd began on March 11th, 1935, in White Plains, New York. The trial lasted 10 days. Um, Fish um, pleaded insanity and claimed to have heard voices from God telling him to kill children. Um, The prosecutor in his summation noted that Fish was a psychiatric phenomenon and nowhere in legal or medical records was there another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. Um, None of the jurors doubted that Fish was insane, but ultimately, as one later explained, they felt he should be executed anyway. Um, so they found him to be sane and guilty, and the judge ordered him um, the death sentence. He arrived at prison in March 1935 and was executed on January 16, 1936, in the electric chair back again at Sing Sing. Um, he entered the chamber at 11.06 p.m. and was pronounced dead three minutes later. He was buried in the Sing Sing prison cemetery. Um and he was said to have helped the executioner position the electrodes on his body. Um, and his last words were reportedly, I don't even know why I'm here. So even after all that, he felt that he was innocent. I don't even know um, why I'm here. And yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of the time they also don't think they've done anything wrong. Which is also just, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. But, so, yeah. Um, and lastly, like, how did a... he think? But like, that's what I'll never understand is like how he literally like ate these people and these kids, yeah. and then he's yeah. like, "What? It's just like making a chicken cutlet, you know?" Yeah, yeah. It's just like nothing. Oh yeah, they they sell it as veal over there. It's fine. It's the same thing. I was like, no, it's not the same thing. That's literally a human being. What What are you doing? <laughs> I don't understand it at all. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Just weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then so lastly, at a meeting with reporters after the execution, Fish's lawyer, James Dempsey, revealed that he was in possession of his client's final statement. This amounted to several pages of handwritten notes that Fish apparently penned in the hours just prior to his death. When pressed by the assembled journalists to reveal the document's contents, Dempsey refused, stating I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. And based on the letters and stuff that he's written before to his lawyers and to Grace Bud's mom, I can 100% believe that. Absolutely. Guy's a dirtbag. <laughs> yeah. Just disgusting. But yeah. So that's that guy. <laughs> yeah. Don't like him at all. 
I was just, I, he, like, I, yeah, I've no, never heard of this guy, but I just, reading it, I was just so, like, I don't know. Like, the other ones, I didn't feel this kind of way. I mean, it, there, every, obviously, it's all horrible, but this one, I don't know, because I guess it's more, I don't know, like, against children, and just, I think, I guess, because also this one, you can kind of see inside his mindset um just with the letters and stuff um yeah because obviously you know that he he wrote that and just i don't know like i've never read something so vile <laughs> i don't know just yeah it was a lot <laughs> to read and i was just like wow okay <laughs> yeah no he's like he's up there with like you know the big heavy hitters of mm. you know serial killers so yeah crazy yeah, and so there's obviously other um, children that they f- suspect that he may have murdered, but um, obviously he was only tried for Grace. But I mean, I guess he got the uh... which it's so weird because like, what was the disconnect between these kids and his own kids? Like, where was oh, the exactly. line that he drew? Yeah, yeah. Like, wouldn't you look at that and be like, oh well, it's weird. You know, my kids are the know. same age. Or whatever like I don't yeah I don't know and I did find it quite su- surprising that he didn't he wasn't said to have done anything to his children at all yeah it's weird because surely I don't know I mean obviously I don't know how he thought but at least his kids weren't right but and also it's like one of those things where like some people could say that like oh like that's his own flesh and blood but then he was so into exactly. the, like self-harm and hurting himself that like in his messed up mind he i feel like in his messed up mind it would have been like oh that's even better because it's like my flesh yeah, and blood yeah my children no it's no. weird he's weird not at I all like him. and his picture is not what i i mean i never really know what these people look like because i don't know but yeah i'll put up pictures and stuff but um yeah there's yeah i don't know he's just he just looks like a guy it looks like a guy that could walk down the street and i don't know but yeah he was 65 when he um was uh, sentenced to death and died so yeah he was actually i guess relatively well i don't know i guess in in that time period is that quite old maybe but and also i thought it was um pretty interesting that they um he made it to the chair quite quickly it was less than a year i mean you have people on death row now who have been there for years and years and they were just like, yep, that's it. Get, get rid of this one. Yeah, they made a special exception for him. They were like, we got to get this dirtbag like, yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's all I have for Albert Fish, if you'd like to tell us your story. All right. Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal king. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was born on May 21st, 1960, to parents Joyce and Lionel. Uh, Joyce and Lionel didn't really have the best relationship. Uh, they were incompatible beyond belief. Uh, the situation was only made worse, uh, by the nausea and discomfort that Joyce experienced, uh, during her first pregnancy, uh, which was with Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. Made for, like, a very rocky relationship with, uh, with Jeffrey. Right. Um, so she, from the time that she was pregnant to... I mean, forever. She struggled with depression and blamed him for it and made sure that he knew that. Oh. 
Yeah, ironically, when he was little, he was a huge animal lover. Uh, like, even as a toddler, he found animals were easier to handle than humans. Um, he was always shy and, like, never really figured out how to play with other kids. So he had a hernia operation in 1964, uh, and the pain that he endured during that kind of changed him forever. Um, it was so excruciating that for a time he believed that the doctors had removed his genitals completely. Um, and it's kind of speculated that this was the beginning of his like fixation on what exists inside the human body. Um, so the next, the next year, uh, Jeffrey discovered a radiation research center uh, that experimented on farm animals in, uh, in Iowa. Um, which is where Dahmer's father was studying for his PhD in chemistry. Um, Dahmer watched in awe at the sight of men wearing arm-length gloves with their hands shoved inside of cows' anuses to take readings. I mean, I would not voluntarily do that. Yeah. <laughs> or be, like, infatuated at the at the sight of it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So after that, Dahmer, Dahmer came across a collection of rat skeletons in a crawl space in his uh, childhood home. Um, amused by his new toys that he called his fiddlesticks, uh, his obsession with what resides inside of living things grew stronger. Um, he had figured out that every animal has a fresh set of fiddlesticks ready to be collected. Uh, Jeffrey had quite a duality to him. He, he named it Dusty, nursed it back to health, and then just let it go. Um, so between that and then like playing with the bones of dead rats, it was it was weird. He was a weird kid. Although although it was clear uh, that he was going back and forth from kindness to creep, uh, his parents continued to ignore him. His mother was still struggling with depression, mostly because her husband was completely preoccupied with his PhD studies. Um, Joyce ignored her son grow up in a typical slur producing home. Uh, his parents, like, there was no abuse. Right. Uh, there was no known uh, molestation. None of the trauma that you usually find when you kind of dive deep into a serial killer's childhood. Uh, and honestly, with proper direction, or maybe just some parental love, Dama, Dahmer probably would have become a skilled, like, pathologist or a coroner or something. Right. Something involving death, but, you know, not the murdering sure, part. yeah. So soon after Joyce became pregnant again, giving Jeffrey the hope that her sibling would give him the coming all of his life. Um, instead, it just made his mother permanently depressed, um, and he never really got close with his younger brother David. So one year later, in 1967, the Dahmers moved to Bath Township, where Jeffrey would reside for the rest of his formative years, falling deeper into his twisted imagination. So how was he? How old was he at that time? Uh, so he was six. Six or seven. Right. In, uh, in 19... Uh, Jeffrey wasn't at all interested in normal kid activities, uh, but he did manage to make one close friend, David Borislav. Uh, Dahmer shared his favorite game of his own creation. It was called Infinity Land. Um, in this game, men, represented by sticks, would be made to inch closer and closer until one of them, overcome by the apparent present presence of the other, uh, would disappear into nothingness. So that was the whole game, just two sticks getting closer and closer and then one of them would just kind of disappear oh that's kind of sad that he didn't really have anything else right exactly and like that's where his mind was yeah. at that point and he was only seven yeah um the sense of alienation that he felt really like you know shine through mm -hmm. in this game that he made uh jeffrey was a pretty smart kid his intelligence soon crossed over the weird and creepy line um one night after dinner he asked his father what would happen if they soaked the leftover chicken bones in bleach 
and Lionel, impressed with the curiosity of his son and being excited to share his love of chemistry, uh, walked Jeffrey through the whole process. Soon after, Lionel gifted Jeffrey a chemistry set, hoping to pass on his love of science, but instead his son used it only to test the effects of chemicals on insects and dead animals. Oh no. Now we're hitting the, you know, typical young serial killer kind of stuff. Right, yeah. Um, so as he, as Dahmer reached, as Dahmer reached his teens, uh, was started as small experiments turned into a collection of specimens. Um, a shed near his house became full of acid-burned corpses of different creatures he'd found. Um, they were stripped completely of their flesh. He also created a graveyard next to the shed that was complete with headstones decorated with the skulls of the animals that were buried there. Right. Um, so when he found, like, roadkill on the side of the road, he would pick them up, bring them to his shed, dissect them. Jeffrey's father gave uh, unenthusiastic approval to his son's behavior because the dead were the only things that really kept Jeffrey's attention. He didn't really come out of his shell until he discovered alcohol at the tender age of 14. While drinking didn't necessarily make him happy, it made him a little less miserable. Uh, forever chasing that feeling, he went into high school as a low-functioning alcoholic, only able to get through the days with scotch or gin in the classroom. That's insane. At 14? Yeah, at 14, he was a full-blown alcoholic. Jeez. Oh, um, his experiments grew darker after the alcohol was introduced. Uh, one time, he decapitated decapitated a dead dog he'd found on the side of the road uh he removed the skin and flesh and displayed the skull on a pole in the middle of the woods wow i assume the dog was dead yeah okay. so he found the the dog dead on the side of the road right. and he brought it back to his, sh his shed and decapitated right. it and then played with it <laughs> um around the time he was hitting puberty he kind of came to the realization not the realization but like he had to kind of settle the fact that he was gay because he had always known since he was little mm -hmm. um he just kind of like internalized it and hated himself for it um he spent most of his time after school sitting in the bushes watching a he was sexually attracted to the man but instead of like normal fantasies that a boy would have about an unattainable love interest uh jeffrey's desires went to a place of darkness he fantasized about the jogger laying still so Dahmer could explore his body for however long he liked and what made this desire worse was that he planned to make it happen. Uh -oh. Planned to knock the man unconscious and drag the body. Uh, Jeffrey never tried to pursue that specific man again, but the fantasy would stay with him forever. Mm. As high school went on, Jeffrey became known as just an alcoholic weirdo that would do anything for a laugh. Um, rather than the twisted and potentially dangerous psychopath that he actually was. Um, he was always the attention seeker. He would fake seizures during class and do impressions of his mother's interior decorator that had cerebral palsy. That's awful. What? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's, yeah. And, like, this wasn't a red flag for anybody. They were just like, yeah, he's just, you know, he's just weird. Why does that always happen? They were just like, haha, look at that weirdo. He's, you know, he's so funny. Like, this ha this is another, like, recurring theme, I think. Yeah. It wow. Yeah, definitely. Like, if if anyone that you know is doing stuff like this, keep an eye on them. Keep tabs on them. You might be a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeffrey's alcoholism grew worse when his parents' marriage finally came to an end. Uh, he had just turned 18 and was left to figure things out on his own, even though he had been doing that for most of his life anyway. In the summer of 1978, Dahmer started fantasizing about picking up a hitchhiker. Uh, the 19-year-old who was unlucky enough to fulfill that fantasy was Stephen Hicks. 
Um, he'd been in town for a concert and was hitchhiking home. Hicks, standing, uh, standing shirtless on the side of the road with his thumb out, was picked up by Dahmer, hopping in the car without hesitation, probably relieved that someone his own age had picked him up. He was like, yeah, someone my own age. It's, you know, I'm not in danger. Mm. I don't think this is going to end well. Uh, Jeffrey invited him back to his house for a few beers and some weed, and the two drank and smoked for hours. Dahmer felt as if they were really connecting like he really thought that he like made a friend in Steven. Um, but then Hicks stood up and said that they'd better hit the road. Jeffrey later stated the guy wanted to leave, but I didn't want him to leave. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> Dahmer told Hicks that it was fine that they had to go. He just had to grab something out of the cellar before they headed out. He grabbed an eight inch barbell, walked over to Hicks and smashed it down twice on his head. When Dahmer found that Hicks was still alive, he strangled him to death. Still in the fantasy, Dahmer undressed the body and masturbated on the corpse. Only after the sexual haze lifted did he realize what he had done. Fear and regret hit him, and Dahmer dragged the body out to the crawl space under the house, leaving it there overnight. <gasps> the next day, he returned to the body, and using a long knife, he removed the arms, legs, and head before slicing open the stomach. Finally, Jeffrey was seeing with his own eyes what was inside of a man, something he had been dreaming about for years. Wow. So this is still at his parents' house. Right. Um, so he's home alone for the summer because his mother and brother went to visit relatives. Right. Okay. So. Oh my God. Imagine your son was doing this in your house while you were away. Yeah. Oh my God. Awful. Um, so from now on, Jeffrey Dahmer is now a killer. He has gone from a recluse to a killer. Yeah. Uh, he would go on to take the lives of 16 more victims over the next few years. Wow. Um, in August, Lionel returned to his former home to find his son home alone, surrounded by empty beer cans. Outraged that his ex-wife had abandoned their son for months, Lionel moved back into the house and brought along his first semester at Ohio State. Um, it didn't last long, though. Jeffrey dropped out of school after two months to join the military. Okay. I mean, I guess he went to go and do something else? Yeah, he, uh, his, like, his roommates were interviewed about him, like, the roommates that he had at college, and they said that he never went to class, he just, like, sat on the top bunk and drank all the time. Oh, my goodness. So Dahmer became a medic, <laughs> uh, training at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, where he was taught the ins and outs of human anatomy. By mid-1979, he was on his way to Germany. He would spend his weekends drinking alone, uh, listening to his Walkman, and sometimes crying, crying over what he had done to Stephen Hicks. Um, so now, like, the guilt starts to set in, which is kind of weird, but we'll see how that goes right. over the next, you know. Um, he earned a dismissal soon after due to his belligerence when he drank too much, as he often did. Right. Um, so, wanting a fresh start after his discharge from the Army, Dahmer left for Florida in 1981. He wanted to see what the beach life was like. Um, he lived in a motel and and worked in a fast food joint on the beach. After he was a victim, ended up back in Ohio at the request of his parents, but he didn't stop drinking. In October, he was arrested after a drunken scuffle with police, uh, but ultimately he was only fined $60. Wow, okay. After the incident, Jeffrey was sent to live with his grandmother in Wisconsin, right outside of him would deter his destructive behavior. Uh, but what they didn't know was that moving him into an isolated basement in a met metropolitan area was probably the worst thing that they could have done. Sure. Because Milwaukee would become his killing grounds. Right. Jeffrey moved in with Catherine Dahmer, uh, his grandmother, 
and for the most part, he behaved himself for the first few years. Um, he started working at Milwaukee Blood Plasma Incorporated, and out of curiosity, one day took home a vial of blood and tried drinking it, uh, but he didn't like the taste. Well, at least that. I mean, what? <laughs> Grim. Not a, not a fan. No. <laughs> um, after being fired from, <laughs> after being fired from his job, Dahmer had a two-year period of sobriety and prayer. Um, he read the Bible almost daily and privately chastised himself, not for his homicidal tendencies, but for being gay. Uh, these guilt trips were enough to keep the killing at bay for a bit, but they were only temporary fixes. In 1984, in a desperate attempt to curb his habits, he stole a mannequin from a store. Uh, he began experimenting with the oversized doll, talking to it, dressing and undressing it, and masturbating onto it. Uh, the only reason he got rid of it was because his grandmother found it in his closet and he was embarrassed. Um... Even though she didn't shame him for it, um, actually nobody in Dahmer's family had ever shamed him for being gay. Um, his father found out, uh, like, separately. He didn't come out to his father, but his father had found out. Mm -hmm. And the only question he had was why Jeffrey didn't tell him sooner. Right. Um, and Jeffrey's mother gave him nothing but love and reassurance when he came out to her. Oh, that's so sad that he felt that he was just... Like, like that it was wrong, even though he did have all this support and stuff. Like, it's really right. sad that he... So, yeah, it's really it's really shitty that he felt that he couldn't be himself. Yeah. Uh, it was mostly because of, like, society and stuff. Right. Because his family was totally cool with it and totally supportive. Yeah. yeah, that is very sad. His unemployment ended when he got a job working uh, the night shift as a mixer at Ambrosia Chocolate Company. Uh, he would hold his job... He would hold this job until the end of his killing spree. Um, he kind of fell back into drinking, uh, with that fell even deeper, he fell even deeper into his sexual deviancy. Uh, he would rub his crotch against unwilling men on the bus, and he once tried to make a move on his brother David. <gasps> Dahmer found suitable hunting grounds in local bathhouses. Uh, he met plenty of willing and able men, but saw them as nothing more than vehicles for his own pleasure. Um, in 86, he started using the scumbag shortcut to get exactly what he wanted, uh, sleeping pills. <gasps> He told his doctor that uh, his internal body clock was having trouble resetting from the working overnights at the chocolate factory. Uh, he suddenly had uh, an avenue to fulfill his deepest desires. So Jeffrey would stuff his pockets with the pills before going out to club bath, uh, dropping them into drinks that he'd buy for other customers. <gasps> he uh, Once he saw the victim getting woozy, he would bring them into a private room and assault them. Uh, the patrons started reporting Dahmer, but it wasn't until one of his victims overdosed that he had uh, his membership to the club revoked. Wow. Um, the police were never called, like, at all for any of these due to the sensitive nature of the establishment. Right. So that they knew that it would only be worse if the police were called to a, you know, private gay club. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so Dahmer moved on to Club 219, a gay bar in Milwaukee. He would drug men and take them to a secondary location after they'd been drugged. Uh, he would masturbate onto the unconscious body and press his ear to their chest to hear their heartbeat. Uh, this wasn't enough for Dahmer. He knew these men would eventually wake up, so it wasn't enough for him. Um, taking another step towards murder, Dahmer tried to uh, Dahmer tried to go the Gein route, uh, which we've talked about Ed Gein. Mm -hmm. uh, he tried to take corpses from the local graveyard. So Dahmer read through the obituaries before deciding on an 18-year-old boy. Uh, he attended the funeral, joined the procession, and watched from a distance the body be buried. Uh, he returned a few days later, but discovered that the ground was already frozen in the Wisconsin wintertime, uh, so he abandoned the plan and kind of let his urges run wild. Wow. 
In September of 1986, Jeffrey was arrested for masturbating in front of two 12-year-old boys. Uh, it wasn't his first arrest, arrest, but his first serious offense. Uh, he played it off, framing the incident as nothing more than a big misunderstanding. He told the authorities that he had a f uh, few lonely and miserable beers in the park. Uh, he went to relieve himself, thinking he was alone. He figured he'd masturbate. The kids stumbled across the scene, and it all went downhill. Mm, I mean, what? I don't know that that's a really good um, excuse. What is that? Like, oh, yeah. It, yeah, it's really not a good excuse. No. Like, yeah, I was alone in the park, so, you know, I just thought I'd, you know. Yeah, no, go home and do, do that. that. Why do you need to do that in a park? Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Exactly. Um, so... Jeffrey Dahmer was ordered to go to counseling. Uh, he refused to speak to the counselor, but she was able to get him to talk enough to make a conclusion. Disorder who may show marked paranoid tendencies. He is definitely spooky. Spooky. That's how she described him? Yeah, spooky. <laughs> uh, so they brought in a second counselor. <laughs> and uh, this one was able to give kind of a more measured analysis. Um she said that his deviant behavior would continue and without intervention could lead to sadism. Uh, Dahmer never did become a sadist, but the prediction of escalation was spot on. In September of 1987, he would kill again. Uh, Stephen Tuami met Dahmer on September 15th, 1987 at Club 219. Jeffrey spiked his drink and assaulted him. Uh, he claims that when he went to sleep, Stephen was fine. When the morning came, Jeffrey discovered that he had beaten Tuami to death, caving in his chest with his bare hands. He stuffed the body into a large suitcase and went home where he lived with the body for a week. After days of decomposition, Jeffrey began his dissection. He decapitated the body, sliced open the belly to remove the organs. He disposed of the flesh and organs in various garbage bags. Uh, next, he wrapped the bones in a sheet and smashed them with a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. The bags were placed on the curb for garbage collection and no trace of stable to let go kept the head as a trophy. He boiled it in Soilex to separate the flesh and brain from the uh, skull and bleached it to give it a nice shine. The skull lasted two weeks before the bleach ate away at the bone, making it too brittle for Jeffrey to use for masturbation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Dahmer continued with this formula for a few more men until 23-year-old Ronald Flowers Jr. came into Jeffrey's life. Flowers woke up in the middle of a field after an encounter with Dahmer at Club 219. After sexually assaulting his victim, Jeffrey had gotten cold feet and dragged Flowers out to the field himself. Ronald reported the incident, but the story couldn't be proven, so police refused to charge Dahmer. Wow. However, this did warrant an investigation, uh, so Catherine Dahmer was questioned by police. The strange, visitor the strange visitors' noises and smells had been tolerable, but this was just too much for her, so she kicked Jeffrey out of the house. Uh, Dahmer took this as another abandonment and left for an apartment in Milwaukee. Uh, the day after he moved, Dahmer met 13-year-old Samsak this is a this last name Synthasomphone Synthasomphone when Samsak was walking home from school uh, uh, Dahmer approached the boy starting a conversation about his new Polaroid camera Samsak nope sorry Dahmer mentioned that he'd been offering models $50 a session for photo shoots, and not knowing what he was getting himself into, the teen jumped at the offer for easy money. Oh, no. Once back in the apartment, Dahmer gave the boy laced coffee and told him to take off his shirt to make for a better photo. 
Dahmer then began fondling Somsek. Somsek groggily grabbed his bag and stumbled out the door. The next day, Dahmer was arrested at the chocolate factory and charged with second-degree sexual assault and enticing a child for immoral purposes. <gasps> um, police executed a search of Dahmer's apartment, confiscating the Polaroid, the photos, and the sleeping pills. Um, but that's... He didn't face any charges or anything from... What? From yeah. Uh, what? So, and it didn't stop him from getting more pills. No. Or anybody giving it to him. Right. So, well, he went right back to the doctor's office and refilled his prescription. Right. No hesitation. Yeah. It was like his 14th refill of... 14th? 14th, yeah. Oh, with pills in hand and back at his grandmother's house, Dahmer was back in the gay scene. He chose Anthony Sears as his next... Jeffrey decided uh, to keep not just the head, but the genitals of Sears. Dahmer knew uh, that it would decompose fairly quickly, so he consulted a local taxidermist to collect some of the, you know, tricks of the trade for preserving animal remains. Uh, he was told that acetone would work just fine, so he preserved the head and the genitals in acetone. Dahmer applied makeup to both of them to make them look more lifelike for his masturbation sessions. Mm. I'm sorry, he was charged. Oh, he was? Uh, in that assault of Samsak. Okay. So I was going to say, how... He was. How can you... Like, guys... <laughs> My notes were... I mean, to be yeah, honest, yeah. I'm not yep. surprised if they didn't either because <laughs> a, a lot of the times we've discussed these kinds of things, the police were just like, yeah, no, it's fine. It's, we have no evidence, it's fine. You, you can go. So, well, that's good. I'm glad right. that they did. I mean, his sentencing was terrible, but we're t we'll talk about that. Right, okay. So they might as well have not even bothered. Uh, Dahmer knew that his trial was right around the corner and that, it would be pro that he would probably be going to jail. Uh, parting with his new toys was unthinkable, so he stored the head and genitals of Sears in a cosmetic case at the bottom of his locker at Ambrosia Chocolate. <gasps> what? Like, what? What? I just, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> like, honestly, oh my god. Can you imagine... If you were like at work with this guy and he was like had the locker next to you and it was just that was in there. Oh my goodness. Wow. Uh, yeah, that. But also imagine hearing this story after you've been buying chocolate from this chocolate factory. <laughs> that too. I was going to say, I haven't heard of this chocolate factory. I wonder if they're still in business. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Um, so in May of 1989, he was found guilty and sentenced to one year in a work release program. Um, the judge wanted to make sure that he can make his night shifts back at the chocolate factory. Uh, and he had five years probation. So, and I didn't know that this was a thing. He was on Thanksgiving leave from prison. Oh? The thing, apparently. They were like, yeah, go home to your families for Thanksgiving. I don't know. From hooks with his legs bound and his hands tied behind his back. Uh, the stranger sodomized him with a candle until Jeffrey screamed loud enough to be let go. So it's like one of those things you'd think, well, okay, now he's experiencing it. Maybe he'll stop. Yeah. But he didn't. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, Dahmer was released from prison on March 2nd, 1990. Less than two weeks later, he collected his cosmetics case from his locker at work and moved into Unit 213 at the Oxford Apartments. So this entire time, that was still in his locker? Yep, the entire... Yeah, the whole oh my goodness whole year that he was uh, in jail and going back and forth from jail to to work, it was just hanging out at the bottom of his locker. Oh my goodness! 
Wow. So choosing the Oxford apartment, uh, it certainly made him stand out, but it also provided him a bit of protection from the police. He knew that he would never be the target of an investigation in the neighborhood. Um, and also it kind of, the police were almost trying to protect him. Uh, in early 90s Milwaukee, so it made it much less likely that police would even investigate the disappearances. Right. You add gay and poor to that mix, and you have the perfect trifecta of less dead victims. Right. Dahmer continued murdering with his usual routine, um, and that is until he brought home Ernest Miller. Dahmer drugged Miller and slit his neck with a knife. Uh, Jeffrey was getting more comfortable with killing, but he also began feeling more guilty about it. Um, he removed the limbs from Miller's torso, sliced the meat from the thighs and arms, and stored it in the freezer for later. Mushrooms and onions. That was his favorite way to prepare the meat. Wow. Mushrooms and onions. <gasps> Again, like, it's nothing. Like, it's just a normal way that you would just have dinner. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Um, so after that, he had a five-month dry spell. Um, that ended when Dahmer brought home Curtis Strauder. Uh, Dahmer was growing more aggressive. Uh, instead of waiting for the drugs to kick in and Strader to pass out, uh, Dahmer strangled him with the head of Strutter's gut. Once he was done, he decapitated the corpse and added the skull to his collection. Wow. Murdered seven more men. <gasps> his experimentation grew into places that had never been seen before in serial murdering. He was murdering that gets him off, but it's the body that he has afterwards. Um, so he began to wonder if a living, breathing person who is who exists solely to satisfy his needs would be more satisfying. So Dahmer was forced to experiment with the subject because there were no guidebooks on how to make an undead sex slave. Oh my goodness. After bringing Errol home and drugging, pulled out a drill and bore a hole into Lindsay's skull just far enough to reach the brain. He then poured hydrochloric acid into the cavity, thinking that this would be enough to turn Errol into a sex essentially what um instead of turning into a zombie Lindsay woke up confused complaining of a headache uh the skin lasted three weeks before it started to disintegrate so Dahmer disposed of it in the toilet he flushed it right down the toilet that's never a good idea stop flushing stuff down the toilet that don't need to be flushed down the toilet <laughs> right um so people were starting to notice the smell of the apartment mm -hmm. uh when confronted by the building manager Dahmer played off the smell saying it was that uh saying that the meat in his freezer had spoiled, uh, which he just couldn't resist. He offered the boy $50 to model for him, uh, which was kind of his thing. He offered boys $50 to model for him, bring him back to the apartment. On rack, sent Dan some phone, probably the same trap that had almost gotten his brother killed, uh, but he would not be so lucky. Uh, once Dahmer had taken the boy back to his apartment and drugged him, it was time to drill. Bore a hole in the top of the skull and poured in the hydrochloric acid. Dahmer left a passed-out Conorak on his tented. A naked Conorak would uh, distress teen, but as they were trying to assist him, Dahmer came around the corner and immediately took charge. The conflict caused fire department and police arrived before he could get him off the street. Now, this should be where Jeffrey Dahmer's story ends. You would think. Because a background check into the person manhandling a naked 14-year-old boy on the street would let police know that he was a registered sex offender who was on probation for assaulting the boy's older brother. Right. Dahmer explained calmly that Conorak, although got rowdy when he, when he had had two men, accompanied by three police officers. The officers poked around the apartment, and had they opened the bedroom door more than a crack, as they did, they would have found the dead body of Anthony Hughes, Dahmer's previous victim. Oh my goodness. Guys, come on! Yeah, so they were 
in the apartment, they would have seen it and Dahmer's story would have been over. Yeah. And probably less people. But they didn't find anything, so the police officers left. It's so frustrating. Conorak was killed almost instantly when Dahmer poured more acid into his brain. <gasps> so Milwaukee's gay community had started to take notice that men were going missing. Uh, they reported the disappearances, uh, but they were never taken seriously or investigated at all by the police because the police didn't care. Right. Uh, in July of 1991, Dahmer was uh, fired from the chocolate factory. I wonder why. Mm. It only um, took them this long to do it. That very night... He went out looking for a new victim. This is when he met Oliver Lacey. He brought him home and had sex with the corpse after killing him. Lacey's heart was put on a plate in the fridge for later. 32-year-old Tracy Edwards would be Dahmer's last victim. He'd been invited over for a beer, but when he was ready to leave, Jeffrey wanted him to stay. Dahmer put a handcuff around Tracy's wrist, pushed uh, the tip of a knife into Tracy's chest, and told him that if he didn't do exactly as Jeffrey had asked, he would die. Dahmer led Tracy to the bedroom where he noticed the unmistakable stench of death. On the bedroom walls were Polaroids of severed heads, um, human meat, and disembodied limbs. When the movie was over, Dahmer laid out his plans to Edwards. He told him he was going to cut out his heart and eat it, uh, but first he wanted to take a few photos of him alive. As Dahmer turned to grab the camera, Edwards punched him in the face, kicked him in the stomach, and ran out the door, still handcuffs. The first people he encountered on the street were police officers Robert Rolfe and Rolf Mueller. Tracy Edwards was uninterested in getting his assailant arrested, probably to keep the homosexual rendezvous a secret. Uh, all he wanted were the keys to the handcuffs. The cops knocked on Dahmer's door asking for the key, and he replied jokingly that the only way to get the cuffs off of Tracy would be to cut off his hands. Mm. And there was some truth to the joke, as that was how Dahmer got the handcuffs off all of his previous victims. Right. Oh my goodness to search for the key and tried to make his escape out the front door but he wasn't fast and putting an end to a serial killing spree that the cops weren't even aware existed wow what followed was a worldwide media event in over 60 hours of interviews Dahmer told his entire story every detail of every murder and attempted to identify every victim he was later quoted as saying because i couldn't do it <sighs> Dahmer was charged with 12 counts of murder as five of his victims could not be identified he was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences. Uh, after a little over a year in prison, the first attempt at his life was made. After that, they offered him special protection. He refused it. He was placed back into general population. Four months later, on November 28, 1994, a fellow inmate named Christopher Scarver caved in Dahmer's skull with a 20-inch metal bar in the weight room as they were on cleaning detail. So yeah, it's really kind of... It, it's weird to think about the fact that if Jeffrey Dahmer had experienced any kind of, you know, familial love during his formative years, mm. or if later in life he had taken responsibility for his poor mental health, because he was diagnosed with so many things, right? like ranging from schizophrenia to borderline personality disorder. Wow. That's, so that's Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal prince. <laughs> cannibal prince. And it's like so recent as well. He was around in my lifetime. Yeah, it's it's weird to think about. Like I was talking to my dad about yeah. it, and yeah, my my dad was like, "I remember this happening. Like I remember watching this on the news. Like it's, I don't know, it's weird to think about." Yeah, I mean, like there isn't really. I can't even really think of anything recent, like uh, like any serial killer now, so much like this. 
like you hear all of these ones and it's just like can you imagine if you heard this on the news that like oh a whole group of people are missing and there's suspected to be killed by the same person and stuff and like it's just so surreal to me yeah it's i mean nobody gets away with stuff like this now because the police actually pay attention yeah that's um, true to things yeah but i don't know it's weird it's, it's like weird to think about yeah like it just doesn't seem like that the stuff the stuff was going on the police had no idea because they just weren't yeah. interested in investigating this yeah stuff. and not doing their job properly like opening the door right actually investigating yeah, the apartment absolutely of the man who was manhandling a naked 14 year old yeah on the street wow yeah it's just like i cannot believe that somebody would behave in this manner i just it's mind mind boggling I, d- I just don't understand it oh yeah absolutely oh, wow yeah some heavy stuff today some heavy topics yeah i know huh? <laughs> like i think i'm gonna go eat dinner soon and i don't know if i'm hungry <laughs> Never get... Yeah, have fun with yeah. that. What do you have in steak? <laughs> I don't actually know. But yeah, I'd be like, mm, don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Jeez. I don't know. It's just, yeah, I don't know. There's like no words. I just cannot like put myself in that situation or like in their shoes kind of thing and think that that was okay or sexually gratifying or anything like that and it's just i cannot believe that somebody would think that way but obviously it does happen and a lot of it is attributed to mental health and things like that but it's just so i don't know like how is this real life and to all the listeners out there if if you ever have the urge to kill anybody or fantasies about killing people or dissecting them get help yes (laughs) Yeah, well, I do. I literally cannot even like there. There are no words. Yeah, there, re- there really isn't, and I'm just like I don't. I don't know how to respond. The silence is deafening. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's right. Giving me a lot to think about. But I've and a lot of I've seen a lot of like Jeffrey Dahmer stuff on TV. Like, not that I've watched it because I didn't want to um, taint my. Uh, my reactions like hearing it the first time from you but yeah i I wonder why he's now coming back because there's been at least like three or four different programs of him just around lately yeah i don't know why i don't know i well there's been a lot of like a lot of stuff on netflix is coming out like a lot of documentaries about different serial killers uh right i don't know serial killers are kind of making a comeback, which, like the, you know, <laughs> all the old ones are yeah. kind of coming back into fame. Right, yeah. It is, I think it is just because it's so interesting that this, like, way of thinking is even a thing. Right. I also think, like, when, when this was happening in, like, the, the 80s and the 90s, it kind of, like, taboo to talk about. And now right. we're far enough, remote, like, we can have these discussions now. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I guess when it is, like, unfolding, you kind of, it just happens, obviously, like, one at a time, right? And you might not necessarily think, oh, yeah, they have something to do with each other. But now, like, looking at it afterwards, like, in hindsight, you're just like, oh, 
that was all one person and stuff. And I think when you do have the complete picture, it kind of just hits a bit heavier rather than, I don't know, a person here and there going missing and stuff. If that makes sense. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all for me from today. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, I literally just don't. I just don't yeah. know what to say. <laughs> There's some pretty awful people out there. Or there were, because both of our guys are now dead. So Yeah, there really are. But yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't very old. He was 34 yeah. <laughs> right when he died. Yeah. Jeez. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he was only 34. Wow. I mean, he was only active. He only actively, like, murdered people people from i think it was like 87 or 86 to to 91 so he killed 17 people in a span of you know four or five years yeah that's a lot and he only had a little bit of a break as well so it's not like i don't know that's yeah. crazy <laughs> wow took like a five month uh five month cooling off period and then he went yeah you know full on after the five yeah, months, he was in. like, I think I'm going to try to eat them. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, cannibalism. Mm. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, so I'm going to put, um, I'll put pictures up of them. Because, again, he's just like a guy. Just, like, looking at him. I don't know. Which I find a, a lot more scary. That they're just guys that you could, yeah, come across. See in a club. Right normal guys yeah well except behind the scenes they're not <laughs> well yeah yeah i mean if you passed them on the street you wouldn't think anything of it no of course yeah um, obviously knowing what they that's... did yeah <laughs> but Jeez. yeah so i will put um pictures up of them and see if i can find anything else although other things might be a bit um gory and nobody wants to. It's gonna get taken down by Instagram real fast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they'll be like, "This is against our rules." So, yep, it should be. <laughs> but yeah, so I'll just put pictures be, yes. up of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, pictures of them will be up um, on our Instagram. Um, but yeah, I don't have anything else to say or to add. It's just I'm in shock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to add yeah i don't know you know follow me on twitter at hail uncensored i promise it's not as depressing as what we talk about on this podcast post a lot of memes <laughs> funny stuff it's a good time yes yeah hopefully next time we won't be so like depressing and i don't know yeah this is just like taking a lot out of me this one <laughs> i don't know why what has <laughs> So yeah, hopefully next time it'll be um less yeah gruesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. So cool. Thanks for listening everyone. Um yep, if you give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, that would be great. And um hope to see you soon. Bye. <laughs>